Roy Halladay was a major league baseball pitcher. And he was, well, he's pretty talented, actually, as a pitcher. But talent alone can only take you so far. So early in Roy Halladay's career, he had some struggles on the field, and he was demoted to the minor leagues. Sometimes players, they get stuck in the minors. They don't get called back up. And it was then that Roy Halladay realized that if this was going to be the end of baseball for him, he was going to make sure that he could say he gave it everything that he had. He was going to do things to the very best of his ability. And from there on out, he became one of the hardest working players in baseball. He made some adjustments to his game. Soon he was called back up to the major league. And more than that, it was just a couple years later that he won the Cy Young Award. It was one of the best pitchers in the MLB. In fact, he went on to win that award again in his career. An all-star multiple times. He's considered one of the greats in MLB pitching. But a major part of his legacy was the fact that he was a player who was known to work extremely hard. His work ethic was known to management and teammates, even to reporters. One reporter said, as he thought back on Halliday's career, that any time he asked Roy Halliday for a few minutes of talk, that Roy would look around for a clock because he needed to check what time it was because he always had another workout that he was going to. One teammate shared the story of how he showed up to the team practice facility early in the morning for spring training. He was sure he had beat everybody. But when he got there, Roy Halliday was sitting down finishing his breakfast. Not just that, his shirt was soaking wet. So he asked Roy, what, did you take a walk in the rain? And Roy just laughed and said, no, nah, you just finished a, a workout that morning before the whole team started working out together. You see, Roy Halliday, he worked hard, and his accomplishments show that. And you know what? This is what a lot of us understand about life. Hard work often brings good results. Sure, there are some people who inherit talent or wealth or status, but those people are the exceptions. For most of us, we experience good things as a result of diligent work. So we apply that to other areas of our lives. Unfortunately, many people think that that same principle applies to salvation. Many people in this world think that they will be in heaven one day because they are good people. That is, they believe that if they, if they work hard enough, if they just do enough good things in this life, that God will accept them when this life ends. Well, Paul is going to address some of this thinking as we turn together to Romans chapter 2 this morning. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to use one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 912. Page 912, Romans chapter 2. My prayer is that at the end of our time together this morning, we will all confidently be able to answer the question, am I good enough to get to heaven? And if you're here and you already know the answer to that question, please understand that there are still many important things that we need to take away from what the Apostle Paul said. Last week, as a recap for ourselves, Paul talked about why our world is so messed up. And it's the fact that people have rejected the clear truth of God. Well, they've turned to idols, and as a result, they've indulged in all sorts of sins. After saying all that, Paul then says in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, this. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. 
For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Let's stop here for just a minute. Again, Paul has just talked about those who are obviously living against God at the end of chapter 1. Those were the uh, open idolaters. They were the ones who invent ways of doing evil. They celebrate sin. For a lot of people, there's no surprise that individuals like that are going to receive God's wrath. But now Paul turns his attention to a different group. This group has been referred to by some as as moralists. They're the self-proclaimed good people who believe that their goodness makes them acceptable to God. Paul knew that these people would be hearing his letter in Rome, just like there may be people here today or who are listening online or on the radio who who agree with how messed up our world is and, and how deserving of wrath other people are. Other people. Because you see, the moralist says that they themselves are not deserving of wrath. I mean, sure, they make mistakes, but they do a lot of good. And after all, they're not as bad as all those other people that Paul just talked about. Well, one of the problems that they face is that by passing these judgments on others, the moralists admit that they know there is a standard of right and wrong. But you know, we have a problem as sinners, and that's that our standard of right and wrong, it's, uh, it's usually skewed. Because we hold other people to these really high standards, and then we lower the bar for ourselves. We give ourselves a lot of leeway, don't we? Uh, like, like when we make excuses for our sins. We say, well, I had to lie, or else everything would have just gotten a whole lot worse. Or we minimize our sin. We say, just cheating on taxes a little. Or we justify our sin. We say, no one knows. No one got hurt. So it's not a big deal. Well, passing judgment on others while giving ourselves a pass, that makes us hypocritical judges. I've had conversations with guys at our open gym basketball ministry that we have here. They'll they'll admit that they've sinned. Yep, yep. they've broken God's laws. Yes, they've done bad things in life. And then I'll ask them when this life ends, if they think they'll be in heaven or hell. And a lot of them will say, well, I wouldn't be in heaven. And for many of them, when I ask what gives them that confidence, they'll look at me and say, because I'm a good guy. That's interesting. In their judgment of things, only Hitler and, and murderers are in hell, but everybody else are really in the clear. But Paul says, God, God doesn't use our standard of judgment. Now, our standard, it's imperfect, it's skewed. It's always tilted in our favor. Have you ever noticed that? God's standard is perfect. It's clear, impartial. It's based on truth. More than that, God takes sin far more seriously than we do. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that those who harbor anger and hatred in their hearts towards others, they actually stand as guilty before God as the one who commits murder. Jesus said that to look lustfully at someone makes you as guilty before God as the person who commits adultery. It's God's standard, not our own, that we're going to be held accountable to. And we have to ask, do we really think we're good enough to say that we are completely 
innocent in God's sight and that we have met his standard of righteousness. I mean, do we really think we're good enough to escape God's judgment? Of course, the moralist might resort to saying things like, yeah, well, at the same time, look at all these blessings in my life. Things are going really good. God's favor clearly is on me. More than that, Andrew, you know, it's not like God has struck me down with lightning for anything that I've done. Let's not show contempt for God's abundant kindness towards us. Let's not lose sight of the fact that God lets the sun shine and the rain pour on the wicked and the righteous alike, and that in his immense mercy and patience, he is simply giving people time and opportunities to turn to him in repentance. It is not our good works that he is looking for. You see, the question, O oh good person, is not where do you stand compared to others, but where do you stand compared to God's standard of righteousness? Because if you've fallen short, even, even in the smallest of ways, do you really think that you'll escape God's judgment? The first reason why the good person fails to earn their way into heaven is because they fail to reach God's standard of righteousness. We all fail to do that. But there's more that Paul has to say. Look at verse 5. He says this. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Now hold on. What is Paul saying here? He said that those who by persistence do good, God will give eternal life. Is Paul promoting salvation by works after all? Now, that can't be the case. Paul already said earlier in chapter 1 that we're saved through our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's the one who wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works. So is Paul a liar? Is he just all over the place? Has he lost it? No, really listen to what Paul said. God's perfect standard is going to be revealed on that day of judgment when people stand before him. He said, for every human being who does evil they will receive trouble and distress. That is God's wrath. Well, we already established that we all do evil because we all fail to meet God's standard. And the Bible is very clear that every single person will stand before God in judgment one day. When Paul says that God will repay each person according to what they've done, he's not saying God gives us salvation based on what we have done. No, the Bible is clear that when the day of judgment comes, all of our works are going to be laid out before the Lord. But that is not a time of determining whether people enter heaven or hell. That will have been determined during our lives, when we had the opportunity to give our lives to Jesus Christ or not. When the unbeliever stands before God, 
on the day of judgment. What the Bible refers to as the great white throne judgment. It will be that at that time, their life and their works will be laid bare before God. They'll be shown that they have no excuse for the life of sin and rebellion and disbelief that they live. And as their sins are laid bare, the severity of their eternal punishment will be made clear. On the other hand, followers of Jesus Christ are going to appear before Jesus at the Bema seat of judgment, as the Bible calls it. Uh, the Bema seat was the judgment seat at athletic games. That was where the victors received their reward. And for followers of Jesus Christ, it's at that judgment that our lives and our works will be laid out. And it's there that we will find what eternal rewards, if any, we will receive. Those things that we will lay at Christ's feet when we enter heaven with joy. These are the ones who by persistence do good and receive eternal life that Paul is describing. It's not that they received eternal life by doing good, but that the good they do as a result of their eternal life. That defines followers of Jesus Christ. The point is this. Neither the judgment of unbelievers or believers will bring salvation or condemnation. That will have been settled long before during our lives. We will be judged by our works at the end of this life. But we can only be justified by faith if we give our life to Jesus during this life. What that means is that when we come to faith in Jesus, we give our lives to him, we repent of our sins, he will forgive us of all the evil that we have done. He justifies us in God's sight. Before God, it's just as if we'd never sinned. And the perfect righteousness of Jesus is put on our account so that when we stand before God, we will have no debt, no penalty to pay. Jesus took the wrath for us on the cross, and those who have followed him, now our account reads, paid in full. To those who hope that by doing good, they, they fundamentally misunderstand what it means to enter heaven and what it means to stand before God one day in judgment. They're so convinced that if they just do enough good things, they'll earn their way to heaven. It's kind of like uh, some of us may have had a teacher in school who did the glass jar good behavior incentive thing, you might know what I'm talking about. And the teacher would have a jar where all the kids could see it. And on a day when the whole class was good, the teacher would put a marble or something in the jar. And whenever the jar got all the way to the top, the whole class got a prize or a party or something like that. That's kind of how the moralist sees life. If they do enough good works, if they fill up that jar in life, then at the end, and they stand before God, they're going to be rewarded with a prize, with eternal life. But Paul says they're not storing up good works for a prize, for eternal life. No, they're storing up evil works for wrath for themselves. And why is that the case? Paul already said at the beginning of the section I read, he said because of their stubborn and unrepentant hearts. There it is. There is why wrath will come. The second reason why the unbelieving moralists will fail to enter heaven is that they fail to repent of their wrongdoing. Don't misunderstand, they might have done a lot of good things in life, but they failed to do the greatest thing, which is to come by faith to the feet of Jesus and repent of the wrong that they had done. So despite their best efforts, all they're doing is storing up wrath for themselves. Then Paul said this in verse 12. He said, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. 
And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. See, there are also some people who think that they're good enough to get to heaven because of the spiritual light that they have. Uh, there were some people in Paul's audience, there were Jews who were present there, who may have thought that their, their heritage, being a part of the nation of Israel, which made them recipients of God's promises and prophets and the Mosaic law, that, that these things gave them a special standing in God's sight. That they had this spiritual truth in their possession that would just whisk them to glory someday. Well, that's silly, we might think to ourselves. But you know, there, there's a 21st century version of this as well. There are people who think that they're in right standing with God because you know what? They own a Bible. They own two Bibles. Or because of their, their godly heritage. Their grandpa, he was a pastor. Or that because they go to church on Christmas and Easter and sometimes in between, that because of these things, they're acceptable in God's sight. There are plenty of people who believe that. I asked a guy at Open Gym one time if, if he knew where he stood with God, if he was confident that when this life is over, he'd be in heaven forever, and if so, why he was confident, and he just smiled and he slapped a tattoo of a cross on his chest, and he said, oh, yeah. And that was his whole answer. And I was so sad for him. Now, thankfully, that young guy gave his life to Jesus a few months later. See, it's good to acknowledge the cross, but the cross needs to point us to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who saves us. And the same thing is true for the Mosaic Law. Uh, Paul said it's not the hearers of the law, but the doers who are declared righteous. Yeah, but none of us can fully do or keep the law. No, we all fail. We all fall short. In fact, back in Paul's day, the Pharisees, they, they were the keepers of the law. They were professionals at obeying God's law. That's what they were known for. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter heaven. So what does that mean for us? Having the law is not enough to save someone. Just like having a Bible or going to church can't save someone. Having a flashlight can't help you in a blackout unless you turn it on and you use the light to get to safety. Having a spiritual light doesn't help us unless we use it to find eternal safety in Jesus Christ. The law, the law was never meant to save people because none of us can keep the law. The law was supposed to show us just how sinful, how short we fall of God's standard, our deep need for saving, so that we would go to Jesus Christ in faith. Now, of course, there were those who didn't have the law, just like today there are people who don't have a Bible, but Paul says they're not left without truth. Paul says the law of God is written on their hearts. There's a reason you can go just about anywhere in the world. You can meet people who have never heard of God or the Bible, and they'll agree with you that murder is bad. Stealing, wrong. 
Disobeying your parents, not a good thing. They'll agree with these things. But this innate sense of right and wrong is because God has written on our hearts a basic understanding of his law. The standard that we're supposed to live up to, but that we fail. Our consciences make that pretty clear to us. That's why most people also admit to you that they're not perfect. And that law written on hearts should also lead people to search out the solution to their sin problem, and that's Jesus Christ. You see, when the day of judgment comes, all those who stand condemned will be judged based on the things that they did and the amount of spiritual light and truth that they had. And the moralist will still fail to enter heaven because despite how many Bibles they might own, or how many cross tattoos they have, or their church attendance record, they still fail to respond to the spiritual truth that was given to them. I think a lot of what Paul is saying here can be summarized by what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. When Jesus was speaking of that future judgment, he said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. There are a lot of people who are sure that they know enough, that they've done enough, that they're good enough to get to heaven when this life is over. Some people will even claim that they have done great things for Jesus, but they never believed in him. And because of that, there are many good people on the day of judgment who will hear Jesus say, I never knew you. Look, I'm not trying to be mean to good people. Neither was Paul. The point is that the same way those who openly flaunt their sin and idolatry and will be separated forever from God in eternity, the same will be true for those who rely on their good works. So when any of us here or anyone we know asks the question, am I good enough to get to heaven? The answer is always no. None of us are. And if we're honest, we would admit that. Because our judgment of others proves that we know that there's a standard of right and wrong, and our conscience proves that well, we fail that many times. Praise God, he's patient with people. He gives them spiritual light, opportunity, and time to repent. And it's those who come to Jesus in faith and repent of their sin and give their lives to him who receive the forgiveness that they need, who are justified in God's sight and are given eternal life. So church, remember, remember this truth this morning. Apart from Jesus, our good works, they have no eternal worth. Apart from Jesus, our good works is no worth in eternity. Now, once we give Jesus our lives, those good things done for him, when we do that, we store up eternal treasures. But until then, all we do is store up wrath. So for those of us here who have given our lives to Jesus, put our faith in him as our Savior, who might be thinking to ourselves, yeah, Andrew, I already knew the answer to this question the whole time. That's true for you. I have a couple ways 
I'd like to encourage and challenge each of us believers this morning based on what Paul has said. The first one is this, the believers, let's be sure that we are storing up eternal treasures. Do not take your salvation for granted. And do not forget that we too will stand before the Lord and give an account of our lives. Let's be sure that we are living a life for Jesus, that when we stand before him, we would enter his presence with great joy knowing that we did our very best to impact this world for his kingdom. The second encouragement, believers, is this. Do not assume that all the good people you know are right with Jesus and that they too are saved. Don't assume that. Remember that Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Until you hear good people profess that Jesus is their Savior, until you hear that, Keep looking to share the gospel with them because there are a lot of good people who are very far from Jesus. So let's make sure we point people to Jesus because he is the only way to salvation. He's the only way to heaven. If you're here and Jesus Christ is not your savior, please understand that I trust you are a good person. I'm sure you're a great citizen, family member, friend, but your goodness isn't going to make you right in God's sight. But the good news is that Jesus Christ died for you and me, for all those things that we've done. That's why we celebrated communion earlier, because of his sacrifice. And please understand that right now, Jesus is waiting to forgive you of all your sins. He's waiting to bring you into his family, give you eternal life. The question is, are you willing to give your life to Jesus? The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never made that decision, we want you to know that you can make that before you leave. Would you pray with me? If you are here and Jesus is not your Savior, please understand that during this final invitation song, you can come to the front and talk to me about that. You can ask me what questions you have. We can pray together. You can go to the back and find one of our deacons, Michael Giorgini. He'll talk to you and pray with you. But if you're ready right now to give your life to Jesus Christ, please know you can do that wherever you're sitting. You can go to Jesus in prayer and by faith admit to him that you know you're a sinner, but that you know he died on the cross for you. That you know he rose from the dead. And friend, repent of your sin and give him your life. And I promise you, based on the truth of God's word, that he will save you. Dear Heavenly Father, for those of us who have made that decision, who have given our lives to Jesus, help us not to take our salvation for granted. And think that because we're saved, it really doesn't matter how we live. Help us to remember that we, we are going to stand before you one day. And I pray that all of us here would be able to look forward to that because we know that we're storing up eternal treasures. And I pray that Every believer at First Baptist Church of Oxford, when they stand before Jesus, that they would enter his presence with great joy because they have lived a life that brings him glory and honor. So Father, I pray that you would move in each of our hearts as followers of Jesus Christ to share the gospel, to get about your kingdom work, to serve you, to serve your people, to live in a way that pleases you. I pray that you would help us to remember that even though there are a lot of good people in our lives, that doesn't mean that they're saved. And we should be diligent to share the good news of the gospel with others. 
Father, the truth is we could never have earned our way to you. So I thank you that in your great love for us, you sent Jesus to us. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you that he didn't stay in the grave, but that he proved that he's the only one who can save us when he rose from the dead. And I pray if there's anyone here who's still on the fence, who's still relying on the good works, who isn't sure where they stand with you, that they wouldn't leave this place that way. Father, we love you. But you prove day after day that you love us more, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.